Michael, this is all very confusing. This is On Markets with Remy and Tino, the podcast where we decrypt and demystify economic, financial, and other investing concepts while mixing in some pop culture. Today, we'll be talking about the collapse of the hedge fund Archegos Capital and PayPal's announcement that users will now be able to make purchases using cryptocurrency via the PayPal app. If you have any questions, comments, or would just like us to discuss something on the show, please email us at comments at onmarkets.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And as always, if you like the show, please write us a review. Before we get started, I have a bone to pick with Tino. If you want to skip to the educational stuff, go to 5 minutes and 35 seconds. So I'm going to read the first two sentences from a piece that Tino wrote last week, entitled, Is Disco Coming Back? The 1970s was a decade to forget. It wasn't just because of the music or questionable hairstyles either. I, there are times in life where you think you know somebody and <laughs> you have a, a certain opinion of them. And then all of a sudden you see something and it starts to really creep into your mind and you start to change your opinion a little bit. It wasn't just because of the music, you said. Arguably yes. the greatest decade for rock history ever. So rock, you know, again, you got to break that down. So, so what it was referring to effectively was the, the title, the disco music, which objectively was total garbage, start to finish. Yeah, and, I can't argue there. Yeah. So, so if you go to the, to the rock, then you got to break it down to different genres. All right. So we got to get through the taxonomy. And I, I agree that there were some, some amazing bands and, and music came out of the 70s. Uh, but there's also a very large portion of that rock that I just, I just can't wrap my head around. Uh, but yeah, I can't wrap it, my head around the sentence, to be honest. Yeah. And, and, I, and again, let's go back to objectivity. The hairstyles are just terrible. I mean, there's a couple of good things that came out of the seventies. Obviously you and I were both born in the seventies. Yeah. It's probably uh, the two best things to come out of the seventies right there. I would like to think that, you know, the movies were strong across the board. You had some great classics, particularly, you know, the De Niro era, Pacino era. Um, there, there were some elements of the seventies, I think that were probably enjoyable. Uh, you know, if you worked on wall street in the seventies, you probably did quite well. Uh, because you know the laws were different, so there, there there are certainly some advantages, but I think overall the music and, and especially the hairstyles um, would love to shift delete those if possible. Wow! So you would like to shift delete the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones? The Not Who. them. No, those those <laughs> those are those are great. I'm just okay. thinking of like. I mean, if you, if you shift delete, those go with it. All right, fair enough. So maybe not all the 70s music, but the disco stuff. Like, I can't name a single disco, like, band or, or group or whatever. I, I, but I know uh, I hate the them BGs. all. All right, the and Bee Gees. I mean, like, that might be where it is. Oh, ABBA. We've got ABBA. Yeah, I just, I, you're probably right on that. I just view ABBA as like the 80s, though, for some reason. Yeah, uh, and that's, I think that's where it sort of gets a little bit... I feel like there's these definitions of, of decades that, that really don't encompass the decade, right? I mean, like when I think of the rock music, I think of 60s and 70s. But in reality, it's what, maybe three years in the 60s and maybe five years in the 70s, right? Um, or when you think of 80s music, you think of like 1983 to 1987, yeah, yeah. you know, but there's five other years in, in that decade. That, that don't really follow suit. So yeah, that's you say that, and that's the reason why. When I think the Rolling Stones, I think and, and the Beatles for that matter, I think the seventy or the sixties. Um, and truthfully, that 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 just could be a preconceived notion that's wrong. But uh, I, I just, 
I didn't really even think about those groups. You know, then you get into others like Leonard Skinner and and Led Led Zeppelin to me is like I don't know. It's, oh my it's god! Don't not say my it. cup of tea. Don't it, say it. There, there's oh, there's on. a couple good songs. Couple How's good that songs. Possible? Yeah. I mean, if you want to go to universally accepted rock, oh fast forward to the god. '80s. All right, it's, you get in the hair hard bands. To have this conversation. Yeah. Universally <laughs> accepted rock is the hair bands of the '80s. Oh my! I mean, I feel like you're just saying things to to get me angry now. That is actually true. Although okay. I will I will say I've got a four year old daughter and. We're past toddler tunes, thank holy God at this point. And, you know, I'm, tr- I'm trying to get her prepared for life. And one of those very early steps is getting her used to hair nation on Sirius. So when I drive her to school sometimes in the morning, I get her, you know, adjusted to all the classics. And, you know, White Snake was on the other day. And, yeah, you know, I, I, could, I could see her like smiling in the back of the car, like kind of bopping her head just naturally. It was almost instinctive. Like, yes, it is a universe, universe accepted, even for someone who's four years old. Wow. You may be the only person in the country that actually wants their daughter to get into white snake. <laughs> Maybe yeah. I'll send her uh, my old rat cassette tape. Oh, man. Well, I'm just trying bad. to think of all those just just truly awful 80s bands that for some reason you still listen to and love them. I don't know why. <laughs> wow. We'll just leave it at that. How, how's that? Yes. So let's get to our first story. Dino, what do you got? Well, hedge fund blew up. Okay. That was interesting. Uh, you know, it, I think the media is probably making it a little bit bigger than it is, but, uh, you know, these, these things happen every once in a while and they're a lot of fun. The media, I always joke around that the media treats uh, hedge funds worse than Republicans because hedge funds are this, this secretive world of finance. And, and, you know, it's viewed as kind of a wild west uh, of sorts, but really uh, they're only secretive for, for one reason. Well, two reasons. First reason is the SEC doesn't allow them to be non-secretive. You know, the, the SEC doesn't allow them to market or advertise. They're designed specifically for high net worth investors and institutions, and they're not allowed to effectively advertise or market themselves to retail investors. And second reason is if they are doing some type of an edge or a strategy that others can't replicate, they don't want them to know about it. So it is a very secretive group. They, you know, they're very tend to be, some of them are very profitable and others are not. Uh, and one of the, 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 the benefit of a hedge fund structure is that you can kind of do whatever you want. You know, there, are, there really aren't rules. Like if you run a mutual fund, you have to have a board of directors. You have very specific rules. It's highly regulated. With the hedge fund structure, you can, there aren't really that many constraints. If you want to short stocks, if you want to lever up, you can kind of do whatever you want up to a point. So this hedge fund, and, and there, I know there's a backstory that's not being reported here. I just don't know what it is yet. And we'll find out in the coming weeks. But this hedge fund blew up because it was over levered. And they basically hid their positions from other banks. And then the banks basically said, hey, look, you know, you need to post more collateral or else. And, and they just decided to liquidate the positions. So um, what was really wild about this story is Viacom, which is not a small company, by any stretch of the imagination, was down like 30-something percent last Friday. I mean, you don't see a company like that fall. And, and <laughs> when you do, the first thing that comes to the minds of others inve- other investors in stocks like Viacom and Discovery are, wait a minute, what the heck is happening? There's no news flow and the stock is down 30%. Somebody knows something and they're dumping shares. And it created this massive chaos in a couple of uh, companies and, and it didn't really resolve itself probably till earlier mid this week. So aside from liquidation, what's the solution? 
I sold the shares. So basically what banks, it's a little technical, but the way this hedge fund basically hid its positions was it engaged in what's called a swap or total return swap with a couple different banks. Now, basically what it was, was I I go to Goldman Sachs and I set up a swap, which basically means that uh, we we pay each other based off of a basket of securities. It's, it's a derivative play. It doesn't really matter. But my point is that it doesn't show up show up on my PL as a hedge fund. So I can then go to another bank and say, hey, I want to do the exact same thing. Here's my PL. And they don't see anything. So they basically did this trade with multiple banks. And then I don't know how it happened. Again, the conspiracy theories that are going to be generated from this are going to be epic when they come out. But I got to think that Goldman called another bank or they found out that they had this hedge fund had the same positions with that bank and they realized that the leverage was way higher than they thought. So the, basically these banks just dumped the positions. And so it caught this uh, hedge fund, particularly this individual, Bill Huang, uh, in a really uncomfortable spot. He's a, he, well, he was a billionaire. I don't know what's going to happen now. He's probably, um, he's probably liquidated. But uh, the leverage on, on, these, on these plays was, was absolutely astronomical. I mean, I don't know how this guy slept at night. So certainly a bit unscrupulous, but is it legal? Legal, yeah. Well, all right. Let's put it this way: um, he is a what's called a tiger cub. Now, uh, that's a reference to uh, Julian Robertson's hedge fund. He's one of the first hedge fund uh, uh, managers back in the I think it was the early '80s or mid '80s. Started Tiger Management, and look back in the day. He, he t- let's put it this way. I think he took like seven point seven million as an initial investment to turn it into like I, don't know, I forgot what it was like twenty five billion or fifteen billion something like that. Now back not, in the day, not bad, not not, bad. not a bad return, no. not a bad return. But those back regulations, in the day, I'm guessing, were a little bit looser. Exactly. Um, let's put it this way: Bill Huang was not a portfolio manager for Julian Robertson at the time. He was a sales guy, an equity sales guy, uh, working I think at like Hyundai Securities. And Julian Robertson used to pay bonuses back in the day to people that gave him the best information. So Bill Huang got a job there at at Tiger uh, Management, I think, because he had provided Julian with a lot of really good information. So you can only imagine where that information came from. So there was a certain culture embedded in, in his DNA. And then uh, when Robertson shut down Tiger back in during the dot-com mess in 2000, all of his quote-unquote Tiger Cubs could have went out and started their own hedge funds. And Bill Hank started his own. And uh, it was called uh, Ar- Archegos, Ar- Archegos or Archegos, something like that. I'm probably mispronouncing it. But um, he ran this hedge fund for a while and he got busted in 2012 for trading on insider information. Then he turned it into a family office, which is which is the thing to do. And when you do that, if you turn your hedge fund structure into a family office, that means you're not bringing in outside capital. It's all your own money. And then at that point, you can kind of really do even more of what you want. There's almost no regulation at that point, except for you can't trade on inside information. So we got dinged for that. And then still, these banks are still doing business with this guy. So basically, they know his rap sheet. They know what he's done. And they still engage in these swap contracts. That's really what I never get. I, I mean, these guys, and it's in every industry too. It's not just this industry, but every industry. You have these people who have these long histories of lying, cheating, stealing, manipulating, whatever it is that you want to call it. And yet they continue to do business. Banks continue to work with them. Uh, consumers continue to work with them. Everybody continues to work with them on the same 
lies and manipulation that, you know, that person has a history for. Yeah, it's that whole Albert Einstein quote. It's uh, the definition of insanity is, you know, doing things over and over again, expecting different outcomes. Exactly. Uh, I, I just, and, and furthermore, I mean, again, I, I go back, I got my start in finance working on the institutional side. I, a lot of my clients were hedge fund managers and a lot of them were billionaires. I mean, they were very, very successful people, but the one commonality across them was they, they couldn't stop. I mean, they were drug addicts. I mean, they didn't do it for the money. I mean, some of them did, but I, I mean, their primary goal wasn't money. I mean, if you've got a billion dollars, you can stop and you are done. You're, you're living the dream. They, they never did. They kept going and going and going because it wasn't about the money. I mean, they're they're, they're, they're addicted. It's, it's, like a, it's like a gambler's issue to a certain degree. So, I mean, you think about this, this, this hedge fund manager who has one in all, and I mean, you can't look at a situation where you've got that kind of money and say you've lost the game of life. Uh, and, and he couldn't stop. He was still massively overlevered, gambling, betting the entire farm. Uh, and you know, I'll throw another quote at you. It's from um, Warren Buffett. He, I'm going to screw this up. He basically said something like, "You know, betting something that you need for something that you don't need is just foolish, right? Putting everything on the line for something you don't need. Why would you do that? It doesn't make any economic sense." But um, that's the mentality. A lot of these old school uh, traders and hedge fund managers they just keep going. Yeah, it's it's the it's got to be the competition. I think. Um Jeez, I, I can't remember now, but I was watching a, um, have you ever seen uh, The Men Who Built America? No. Oh my gosh, you need to watch it. It's great. It, it came out, I don't know, maybe five years ago now. Um, and it's maybe six episodes or so. And each episode usually follows one particular person. You know, there's one on Andrew Carnegie, one on, on Rockefeller, one on JP Morgan, um, one on Henry Ford, uh, a few others, I can't remember. But um, it reminds me of, I think it was Carnegie and Rockefeller. I could be wrong, but I think it was those two that um, had, you know, essentially at, at the time were the, the two, you know, richest people, I believe, in the world. And they were sort of trading places uh, at, at number one and two for a while. And, you know, obviously it was, was quite the competition. And again, I don't think it had anything to do with the money. It was just, you know, they wanted to be number one. And at some point, one of them decides he's going to start you know, being a little bit more of a philanthropist and starts donating money. So the other one starts donating money and then they get into a competition about how much money they can give away, right? So it's not how much you can make, it's how much can I, can I give away to, to whoever. Um, so I, it, it's kind of the same thing, right? It's like it, the money is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's maybe the result, but, but it's not the driving force. Nah, it, it is a lot of ego. It is a lot of competition. I mean, look, it's like, uh, I'll fast forward to last year that the, that documentary, The Last Dance on Michael Jordan. Uh, you know, here, here's a, here's a guy who's the greatest of all time, and you, you're sitting and watching him. He's you know he's older now, and he's being interviewed, and you can see the, this that unquenching desire to just take people down. And he's like in his fifties or sixties now, and he can't stop. I mean, it's, can't it's, stop. it's in his eyes. Like you could see it the whole time. He's just, he just wants to keep going. Uh, these people are obsessed with it. So, uh, maybe that's why I'm not a billionaire. I, I don't know. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, no look, doubt. I like to compete, but I mean, there is a limit and, you know, uh, but Hey, uh, you know, the, but, but it's interesting. It's what, what I find interesting about the hedge fund world 
is that it's it's so misreported on. It is viewed as a wild west, but you know they, they call them hedge funds for a reason, right? The word hedge is in the name. There almost every hedge fund out there, or the majority of them, are designed to hedge some type of a risk. They tend to run strategies that aren't wild westy. They tend to focus on specific risk mitigation tactics or some type of highly specialized strategy. They are run by people that are incredibly bright and are very methodical in terms of how they invest. You know, when you, when you come across hedge funds blowing up or fraudulent activity or insider trading, whatever you want to call it these days, you know, fraud is an interesting subject, even like a Madoff type fraud. They're reported on just enough throughout the year to, to, to make you think that this is an ongoing problem in the industry. But the, ca- the actual instances and occurrences of fraud are exceptionally rare in financial services. Relative to the, on, to the ones that aren't committing fraud, it's almost st- statistically insignificant. But when they happen, they freak people out and they make them think. And it, and it, gives, and it gives, honestly, it gives hedge funds a bad name. Uh, it's not like bi- that show Billions on TV. I don't know if you ever watched that show. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, it's which which is an awesome show for other reasons. But uh, that's not the hedge fund world. I mean, most of these are most of these hedge fund managers. Um, they can barely make eye contact with people. They're very um, socially awkward. Not to be rude, but they're but they're very very good at numbers and they're very very good at calculating, quantifying, assess, assessing risk. Uh, and it's kind of a it's kind of like so you're, you you do computer programming. It's like software developers. They're very very analytical, but that's kind of where it ends. Yeah, uh, somewhere along the way, the media or Hollywood has has glamorized the the industry. Yeah, and and to a degree, uh, I can understand why. I mean, there are it's like any other industry. The best of the best makes really good money. And the, the, the economic uh, incentives behind running a, a su- successful hedge fund are probably like none other business out there. Uh, but, and, and it does attract the best and brightest talent for the most part, uh, which is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, you know we, we obviously don't invest in hedge funds here because the, the, the one other element of hedge funds is they tend to lock up capital for a long period of time. And that's unattracted to a lot of investors. But, you know, a lot of the strategies that hedge funds use are attractive. And, and we actually uh, we actually mimic a lot of them here, not necessarily on trying to pick, you know, huge gains or doing derivative strategies. Ours are more focused on, okay, how do we dampen the ride or how do we smooth the ride out over time? How do we dampen volatility uh, during times of extreme panic or extreme stress in markets? How do we make that ride a little bit more comfortable for our investors? So we've, we dabble with them, but, um, but at the same time, nowhere to the degree of what, what you would see on the, uh, on the institutional side of the business. So I don't know if you saw this morning. I, I, I feel like every week uh, I, I go into this podcast thinking, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to talk about any, any cryptocurrency-related news today, right? But for some reason, every week, something is in the headlines. And I guess for the past um, few months, you know, it's been sort of a lot of, uh, I don't know what the right word is, uh, over-exaggerated headlines. But today's, I actually think, um, holds some weight. And this morning, I, I read that PayPal, who had announced that they were actually going to start accepting cryptocurrencies maybe four or six months ago. Um, I, I think that news sort of got you know washed away with all the other headlines over the past few months. But they went live this morning. And I think that's actually a very big deal. I, I think there's, there's going to be serious consequences. And, and I don't necessarily say that in a negative way, um, but serious consequences and, and a big effect from that. Did you read that? 
I did. And, and I don't think there's any question. Look, this is not like Tesla accepting Bitcoin or crypto for for buying a, a fancy car. I mean, this is a medium of exchange through PayPal. So uh, th- this is a big deal. I'll be very interested to see how this plays out. Uh, the first iteration tends to be bumpy and clunky. And, you know, the, we'll, this will be a very true test uh, to see if the regulators are okay with this. Um, because uh, this is a this is a true form of currency at this point. Sure. So, uh, I, yeah. I took some notes down as I was reading it. PayPal has 29 million merchants that currently accept PayPal and 361 million users. And just to put that into perspective, in the US, PayPal accounts for 22% of all online transactions. Yeah. That is huge. It's a big number. It is a big number. I mean, look, they are the payment system for eBay, effectively. I mean, eBay used to own them. So, yeah. Uh, I think they actually, so I just read that they ended that relationship with eBay. Yeah. The, uh, PayPal spun out maybe two years ago. I forgot. It's some, somewhere in that range. Yeah, a couple of years ago. Uh, yeah, they're a separate entity, which is the right thing for PayPal. Uh, and it's been a great yeah, stock no since then. And, and now being able to accept crypto. Yeah, I, I, think, it's, I think it's a big deal. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, Remy, you know that I, I, I have a weird hobby on the weekends. I like to buy stuff cheap and flip it on Craigslist and stuff like that, which yes. I know is not logical, but it, it, it makes you pays happy. for like kids art supplies and stuff these days. So, um, Hey, look, if, if people want to pay for my old furniture using, you know, Bitcoin, fine by me, I'll take it. Uh, I, I love the idea. Uh, It'll be so. Just to clarify, actually, they won't be able to do that just yet. So I, I read up on it a little bit. So you, they they will not allow person to person transaction. Ah, okay. So right. So so they don't want to be a crypto trading platform. That makes sense. So so there there's no person to person transaction. It's only purchasing um, directly from a retailer or some sort of merchant. So essentially, they won't store your Bitcoin. I believe you can connect your wallet to PayPal. And when you want to pay a merchant, you can choose. um, And it's not just Bitcoin. It's Bitcoin, Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, and Litecoin, I believe, are the four that they'll accept. And you can connect your wallet to PayPal. If you want to use one of those four to pay, PayPal will actually convert the crypto into USD and and then pay um, USD. Yeah. So the merchant is actually receiving the US dollar and PayPal is making that transaction, but they're not actually charging for a commission for that, for that transaction. So the, they'll convert for free and you can pay. I, I would just, I don't know where the Bitcoin or the crypto is actually going at that point. I don't know if it's, I guess it's going to PayPal. Yeah. So it'd be like, you know, going to, um, you know, landing in Paris and, and swapping your dollars for euros and not having to pay that currency transaction or currency exchange fee. And, and I think the reason why they're doing that is they probably have a team somewhere that is, you know, basically manage either managing that risk or maybe they have an internal trading operation where they're taking in the Bitcoin, converting it, and then um, using it as a way to basically profit from the rise of Bitcoin. It's kind of like a proprietary trading desk for a bank. Uh, if that's what they're doing, which would make sense, uh, I'd be curious to see from a regulatory standpoint what they can and can't do. But yeah, I mean, it kind of feels like an undercover land grab, no? Could be. Yeah, yeah. Let's 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 grab up this crypto. Let's hedge our risk in some way, shape, or form. 
And if it keeps going to the moon, I mean, look, it's interesting to see, uh, what was it, Square? Yeah, Square bought a bunch of crypto. And then um, obviously Tesla, Tesla made a big position back in January. It's, it's interesting from an investor's perspective because it gets a little in, in, in accounting minutia, but it's, it's, it, they, the way they classify this crypto on their balance sheet is if the value of the crypto rises, they cannot increase the book value of their company. But if it falls, they must. So they have to take an impairment charge. So in, in that instance, it's kind of a little bit like real estate, for example, or, prop, or, or if, you, if, you're, if the value of your property falls, you have to take an impairment charge. But if it goes up, you have to keep it at your acquisition cost. But uh, a lot of investors like to own companies because their historical acquisition cost and their current market value of their assets don't match. So uh, this this could end up being, and again, I'm not I'm not making a recommendation on the stock because I don't know, but this could end up fueling uh, some interesting uh, incentives around rising stock prices going forward for these companies that are that are taking these gambles right now. This podcast is created and presented by Darwin Asset Management, LLC and Darwin Advisors, LLC, collectively referred to as Darwin. Darwin does not make any representation or warranties and therefore takes no responsibility as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information contained in this podcast. Any tax or legal information contained in this podcast is general in nature. Always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. The information presented does not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and there can be no assurance that any investment or strategy will be suitable or profitable for a client's portfolio. All investment strategies have the potential for profit and loss. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Information presented is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities mentioned herein.